there are many times in a Christian's life when we feel we just aren't living for Christ as we should. Everybody here agree with that? Okay. This often causes us to feel discouraged, frustrated, depressed, and even at times maybe wonder if we're truly saved or not because we just, are, we just look in the mirror and we go, look at all the blemishes. Then you add to that feeling passages like the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And the Beatitudes basically say this is the character of a Christian and this is, we're supposed to be this. And we look at that list of characteristics in the Beatitudes and we look at that and we go, hmm, not really. And then we look at passages that are very, very hard sometimes to look at, uh, like 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. And by this we know that we've come to know Him. So by this we know that we are saved if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is what? A liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. By this we may know that we're saved. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same in which the way in the which who Jesus Christ walked. Oh, that's hard. Because John is being very upfront there. We know that we have come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior if we keep his commandments and walk like Jesus Christ did. And if we don't, we're liars. Add to that the Beatitudes, everything we've talked about. And then we have 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. How many of us measure up to that? That's tough. And then we have uh, passages that we've been going over in James. You know, we're just adding to the pile here. We see in James so far, we've seen this, James 1, 13 through 15, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For, no, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person, listen to this, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. All temptations that we encounter come from where? Within us, we cannot ever point to anything or any situation or anybody outside of us and say, I was tempted because. How many of you just accept all the temptation as your own? How easy is it for us to point fingers and say, hmm, I did it because they did it to me. And then we look at James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Know this, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Oh, I'm right in there. No problem. Not. For the anger of the man does not produce the righteousness of God. And then we've gone through more. Than the, that's just the first chapter of James, and we're already up to chapter 5. It's easy to look in the mirror and just sigh and feel discouraged. But God did not write these things in His Word to cause us to be discouraged. He put these things in His Word so that we would know. I want you to listen to this. He put these things in His Word so that we know what we are becoming. He put these things in His Word so that we know what we are becoming. Because we can't help 
but become those things if we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's called growth. It's called sanctification. God wants us to know that He is changing us, and He is changing us into certain things. Many of those passages that we talked about. I want you to listen to God's Word to you. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this. Paul is saying, I am sure of this, that He... God, or Jesus Christ, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What do we say? What do we say? Listen, folks, whose job is it that He's changing you? God. And what is the promise there? He is going to complete it. Even if you're stubborn. He's going to complete it. That's a big amen. Then we have Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you to both will and work for His good pleasure. Who is doing the work in you to make sure that you do this? God. He says, here's the standard, here's the blueprint, all these passages about your behavior and patterns of living and all of this. He goes, he understands we're going to fail. He understands that we're not going to be perfect. But he also understands that I'm going to complete the work no matter how stubborn you are. And that is a great source of comfort to us. Then we also see in Romans 8, 29, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to whom? His Son, Jesus Christ. Who is making sure we're going to become more and more like Jesus Christ? God is. God is. God is at work transforming you into the child He wants you to be. You and I cannot complete, accomplish this transformation by sheer power or great self-discipline, and God knows that. We have become new creatures in Christ, but until He calls us home, we live in a si- sinful bodies that desire the sinful things and self-centered things of this world. It's a growth process to become what we see in the Bible, to become more like Christ. It's a process to grow and mature in the fruit of the Spirit. But as we have read... God has promised that He will complete the work. It's not just up to us. However, He has given us the responsibility to work out our own salvation. Look what He says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, you, as you always have obeyed, now, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. He doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation. What you have already received, what you have already received from me and via the Holy Spirit living within you, he says you have a responsibility. I'm going to make sure it's done, but you have the responsibility to work it out. You have the responsibility to walk and put into practice what we see the Bible saying our daily life should look like. We should be practicing it day in and day out. We need to become face-to-face with it. We cannot practice something unless it's right here before us. And Many of you know that I have coached for many, many years. How many of my athletes understand they're doing something wrong? Many of them don't. They don't have a clue. I'm a cross-country coach. Some of them don't know how to run. They run with their hands out like this okay, or they run like this, okay, oh, I could just make you guys laugh forever for some of the things I've seen, but the thing is, until I tell them this is the standard, until I tell them this is what you're doing wrong, this is what you're not 
doing to become a cross-country runner. They have no clue. And so it's for me, am I doing that to be mean? Am I doing that to be disrespectful to them? No, I'm doing that because I want them to become something as far as a runner that they aren't right now. And in the same way, God is doing that to us in the Bible. He says, this is what you should be practicing. This is what I'm working at completing in you. This is what it looks like to be a Christ follower. It's hard. It's difficult. You're going to fall down. You're not going to always be thankful for the drills that I'm putting into your life. But I am completing a work, but I need you to practice, just like I needed my cross-country owners to do what every day? Practice what I was telling them they needed to do. Could I make them practice? Not really. I can't tell you how many times I say, hey, I need you to practice this, and I go work with somebody else, and I come over there, and they're sitting over there drinking a Gatorade. I got tired, coach. Going like, how many times you do it? Twice? Nah. Put the Gatorade away. We're going to do this 50 times. Coach. But see, we need to know what God is saying. He says, I promise to work a work in you that will change you into mature Christ followers, a work that will succeed. However, I'm giving you the responsibility to put into practice the changes I am making in you. He will ensure we become what we find in His Word and part of His process for us to obediently is for us to obediently practice what we are becoming. If your faith is genuine, this is what is going to happen in your life. God informs you throughout His Word, changes you in light of His Word, through the work of the Holy Spirit, and through the Holy Spirit gives you the desire to practice those changes no matter how, no matter how hard it is. And this process can become a test of genuine faith, which you've heard me say throughout this series, because every Christ follower is in this process, period. Every Christ follower. Different places, different times, different situations, but we're all in that becoming like Christ process. If someone claims to be saved through faith in Jesus Christ and doesn't find themselves desiring to be more like Christ, doesn't find themselves practicing and working out their salvation, then they have no assurance of their salvation because every Christ follower automatically does it because they have the Holy Spirit living within them. That's why these things that we've looked at become tests. What we are being challenged with in James right now is hard. James is getting right in our face and, say, and saying this, this is what a Christ follower looks like practically. This is what a Christ follower looks like practically, where rubber meets the road. This is what a Christ follower's life should be growing into. And as we've seen, these challenges are really hard. But they're God's way of showing us what He wants us to change into. They're God's way of showing us what drills we need to put into our lives. They're God's way of saying, be encouraged, I'm doing a work in you. I just need you to practice. We don't need to be discouraged. We don't need to be disappointed or depressed. I've seen that in, in cross country. They keep trying and they don't get it. And they keep trying and they don't get it. And they keep trying and they don't get it. I had one young lady. My standard for cross country is you don't get a uniform until you can run four miles without stopping. And this one, and you have to tell me when you're ready. And then I would run with them to make sure they didn't stop. I would go at their speed as long as they didn't stop. This one lady, young lady tried four times. Always stopped. 
got discouraged. I had to come alongside of her. Hey, come on, we can do this. She finally stopped asking because she, what? I can't do it. One day I was handing out the things and I looked at her and I said, you're running with me today. She said, why? I said, because you're going to run four miles without stopping. She goes, but coach, I already had her uniform in my car. It was hard. It was difficult. But she finished without walking one time. And you should have seen the look on her face at the accomplishment. And when practice was done and they were sitting around their circle, I said, I'll be right back. And I come holding her uniform and everybody on the team started clapping because they knew who the uniform was for. You see, that's the process we're in with Christ on an eternal thing, our salvation. That's why we don't want to be discouraged as we're going through James. When we look at James and we see ourselves with blemishes, we want to look at them and say, those blemishes can disappear. Those blemishes can get better because God's doing a great work in me. And now I have a reason to practice. This morning, we come to a place in James where he's going to warn us about misusing the wealth that he provides. If everybody would stand, please, and turn to James chapter 5. It'll be on page 1,291 in your pew Bible if you don't have a Bible. James chapter 5, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 6. Verse 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and, their cry, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. Father God, we come to you, and we thank you for the encouragement, knowing that you are doing a good work in us, knowing that you are changing us to become more like your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you so much, Lord God. We praise your name for that. Father, we ask for the strength and the wisdom and the discipline to practice. We ask, Lord God, that, that we would have people around us on the days that we falter and we feel like we just want to give up, that they can come alongside of us and say, come with me. We can do this together. And Father, we pray that this morning as we look about wealth and how it is so often misused, I pray that it would challenge us to be more like Jesus in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. We need to set the stage a little bit this morning because this is a new section in James's letter. It's still attached to another section, but... James begins this section of his letter in the same way that he began the last week's section when he says, look at James chapter 5 in verse 1, come now, come now. He says, you listen up, pay attention, don't miss what I'm getting ready to write. He did that last week when we were talking about making presumptuous plans. And here he's saying, this is important too, don't you miss this, don't you miss this. And he is continuing in his theme here back to what we looked at in chapter 3, verse 15. Here's what it says. It says, this is not 
the wisdom that comes down from above, but earthly and unspiritual and demonic. And then since chapter 3, verse 15, he has been going through and showing us what an unwise, earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom looks like in our life. In in chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, he warned against this worldly wisdom. In chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, which we went through last week, he says, planning without God's will in mind, okay, is earthly wisdom. And we need to grasp that. Presumptuous planning, planning without God here is unspiritual, it's demonic, it's sinful. And we learned about that last week. This morning, he's going to help us see that the misuse of wealth is another characteristic of earthly wisdom, and he wants us to pay attention. And this is not the first time that James has warned us about wealth and riches. Turn back to James chapter 1, just a couple of pages. James chapter 1, verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and verse 10, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. What he's saying there is those who are rich will fade away like grass. And then he mentions wealth and riches again in chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, what kind of man is he talking about? Rich man. And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, you have not then made have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? Basically what he's saying, have you not been partial in my own church? Just because of the way a man looks. And then he goes on further, he goes, you're doing this to people who even oppress you. And he goes, this just doesn't make sense. However, this new section of James's letter changes perspective. He is not directly addressing the believers in the church. That's why we need to set the stage here. He is addressing the unsaved who are not part of the church. Look at James 5 again, starting in verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Notice how James calls for the rich to weep and howl, and he is because of the judgments that are coming. It's a sure thing. They are going to be judged. He does not speak about repentance. He does not call them to repentance. He is talking about the wicked rich who live in the world around them who are going to be under judgment. And so James is saying, is pronouncing condemnation on those wicked rich who are outside of the church. He never calls them to repentance. It doesn't mean there weren't some of these wicked rich inside the church. But basically what James is doing is like the prophets of old did in the Old Testament. We see the prophets of old speaking against Egypt, against Babylon, against the Syrians. And they are, the prophets are speaking to the Israelites, but they're speaking about their enemies. They're speaking about those people who are oppressing them. And those people aren't in the audience when the prophets are saying that. He's pronouncing a judgment. He's pronouncing a condemnation against Israel's enemies. And we see James doing the same thing. He's pronouncing judgment and condemnation for these wicked rich that live outside that he's already mentioned in chapter 2 that oppress some of those that are inside the church. And you say, well, why is God doing that? Why is God doing that? Why would God address something 
to people that are not even sitting, listening to the judgment. It doesn't make sense, but it does. For the same reason it brought the Israelites comfort and encouragement. He is pronouncing condemnation. He is pronouncing woe upon the wicked rich. And when the people in the church, those who are being oppressed, hear this, they understand that God is going to judge their enemies. They understand that even though they seem to have it all, they have the power to oppress, they have the power to misuse their wealth, they have all the power through this pronouncement of judgment, those who are being oppressed, the poor in the church, know what? God is going to take care of them. Does it really help encourage us when we understand that when we are on the wrong side, that when it seems like we're being oppressed and people treat us wrong, is it an encouragement for us to know that God is going to handle that? Does it give us strength to persevere? Does it give us a purpose to persevere? Yes, because my God is going to handle this. And this is what He is trying to help the people in the church. You see all those wicked rich out there. They are going to be condemned by God. And they're going to get their comeuppance. And that would encourage the people in the church, correct? It would also reveal God's standard to the people in the church. When God would call out the sins of Israel's enemies, His people would come to understand very clearly, God will not tolerate these types of sins. And so as James is talking to those wicked, evil, rich people out there who misuse their wealth, what is he also teaching the people who are inside the church? Don't use your wealth like this. If God blesses you, don't you become like them. Understand there is woe pronounced against them. Don't understand there is condemnation pronounced against them. And so in an indirect way, he is teaching the people who are listening to them to say, don't be like them. Don't miss your wealth like they are. Don't be like them. And so that's why God would do this. It's a way to, to bring comfort, and it's a way to teach What James is going to teach us this morning is going to really challenge us. He is going to make us look in the mirror and ask, am I managing my wealth with a heavenly wisdom or an earthly wisdom? We all know that whatever wealth we have belongs to God. We all know we are not owners, but we are stewards. But James is going to challenge us with this question. You know who owns everything you have? But do you practically live as if you are spending somebody else's money? That really gets to the heart of it, doesn't it? Let's say that June Riggs is a a millionaire, and and, uh, by the way, she's not. Just don't come to her for loans and stuff like that, okay? But June Riggs is a millionaire, and June Riggs says, Pastor Mark, I want you to manage and be a steward of $100,000. Should I spend that $100,000 like it's mine? Should I use that $100,000 for my benefit? No. Every time I spend a dime of that money, whose name should come to my mind? June Riggs. Is she going to be happy with how I am spending her money? If God owns everything, which He does, if there's no material possession or any child, who owns everything? God, your children, your spouse, your situation, your uh, career, your money, 
your house, you name it, God owns it. If we don't spend our days as we are managing and being stewards of His wealth with the idea that, Lord God, is this how you would have me spend this? If that question does not cross our minds, then we're not being good stewards. He wants us to ask this question again. You know who owns everything you have, but do you practically live as if you're spending somebody else's money? And so, James, we are going to find in our verses this morning, starting in verse 2, gives four condemnations to those who misuse their wealth. Four condemnations to those who misuse their wealth. And we find the first one in verses 2 and 3. The hoarding of wealth. The hoarding of wealth. Your riches have rotten and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. I need to remind all of us that the Bible does not teach that wealth is sinful in and of itself. Is it okay for us to be rich? Yes. I mean, if you look at Solomon, you look at King David, you look at uh, so many people, you look at Abraham, you look at all, a lot of the people in the Old Testament, were they very, very rich? Yeah, Job was rich, and he was considered a righteous man. So the Bible does not teach against wealth. Moses reminded the Israelites who were preparing to enter the promised land, look at what he says, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to what? get wealth. What did they need to expect when they crossed the Jordan? That God was going to make them wealthy. Solomon, one of the richest men in the world, says this, Proverbs 10, the blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. It's okay to be rich, and we don't need to feel sorrowful for it. What is wrong, what is not godly, misuse One's wealth. To use it in a way that's inappropriate from God's perspective, not yours. And James, in these two verses, cautions against the hoarding of wealth that God has blessed them with for their own selfish and sinful ends. In the ancient world, there were three types of wealth. And James refers to all of them here. In the first part of two, uh, verse 2, he says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. The riches have rotted refers to food. It's that idea of rotting and, and becoming where you cannot use it or you cannot partake of it. That's what the, the Greek refers to. An abundance of food was a sign in, that, in the first century that a person was wealthy. Not everybody was food secure. Not everybody had three meals a day. But the people who were wealthy, they ate very well. They ate very well. And so abundance of food isn't the issue. And it's not sinful in and of of itself. But when there is so much of it, when they hoard so much of it that they can't even eat it all and that it's rotted and they have to throw it away, he condemns that. They're not thinking about what else they can do with that food. They just hoard it. They put it in their pantries until it rots and they throw away. Then they buy more. Your riches have rotted. It rots and cannot be used. And I want you to understand something. It is easy for us to dismiss this as not being part of our lives. But we really have to come to terms with this, folks. Folks. 
how much food that we buy goes to waste. How much food that we put on our plates and we cook and stuff end up in the trash. And then we go out and buy more and do the whole thing over again. How much food ends up in our trash cans that the majority of people in the world would not even begin to understand because they don't even have one meal a day and we throw so much of it away. Food is so abundant in our culture that we may find ourselves just taking it for granted and the money we use to buy it is actually wasted. And we say, well, I, I, that's not hoarding. I don't. You're right on the edge there. And we need to come to terms with that. We do. James then addresses a second type of wealth. It's also in verse 2. Your riches have rotten and your garments are moth-eaten. Your garments are moth-eaten. Wealth in the ancient world was also measured in the terms of garments and how many changes of clothes you have. How many of you have multiple changes of clothes? Raise your hand. How many of you need more closet space because you have multiple changes of clothes? And we have to understand that that is a sign of wealth. And we know that in Genesis 45, 22, to each of them he gave a change of clothes. He's talking about Joseph when he was ahead of Egypt. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and what? Five changes of clothes. That was to set Benjamin apart from everybody else. He was getting Five changes of clothes. How many of us have five changes of clothes in one drawer? This was a sign of immense wealth that Benjamin was getting five changes of clothes. We also see in Judges 14, 12, we, many of us know the story of Samson, and Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And that day, that was immense wealth. And so we understand that throughout Israel's history and even into the first century, clothing, garments were a sign. And how many you had were a sign of wealth. Here in our passage, James is referring to clothing such as robes and cloaks that were often richly ornate. They were ornate. They had jewels and they had gold and silver woven into them. Again, this type of wealth was not considered sinful unless, as James makes a point of it here, there's so much of it they couldn't stop the moths from destroying it. They, couldn't, they had so many clothes they couldn't wear them even if they tried. They were just stacked over here and they were stacked over here and stored in the bins over here. There was so much clothing that they claimed as theirs, so much of this wealthy clothing that they couldn't help or keep the moths from destroying it. And there were people throughout the cities and in the streets who either could have used that clothing or could have benefited from the money if that clothing was sold. But they were letting it do what? Rot in the corner because they couldn't get to it. And we have James condemning this. He says, your garments are becoming moth-eaten. Look at what it says again. Verse 2. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. There is no value. Hoarding garments was as foolish and useless as hoarding food because you couldn't keep it. 
Third type of wealth that James refers to is found in verse 3. Wealth in the ancient world was also measured in precious metals. Look at verse 3. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Basically, gold and silver back in that time of the earth's history was the currency. So we don't have necessarily gold and silver, but we have currency. And what James is saying is our currency is a measure of our wealth. James would have known that gold and silver does not corrode. And it doesn't. He is, however, making a very poignant point that they would have picked up on. These unsaved rich folks had stored up so much gold and silver that there was no way for them to ever use it in a lifetime. And it just sat in the corner, collected dust. It just sat in the corner. And even though it didn't corrode, it was as if it corroded and didn't even exist. There was so much of it. He's condemning that. These unsaved rich folks had stored up so much that they could not even use it in their lifetime. And even though gold and silver don't rust, it was as useless to them as if it had. James is clear that hoarding money, money given as a blessing from God to be used for His glory, will be severely judged by God. Look at the last part of verse 3 again. And their corrosion will will be evidence, their misuse or their, will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. It will eventually end up destroying you. This attitude of hoarding wealth like this is what he's saying. It is evidence of your selfishness and it will eventually lead to your destruction. And he makes a really strong point here at the end of verse 3. He says, You have laid up treasure in the last day. In other words, your effort, all the effort you do go to building this wealth that you don't use is just laying in corners. All of this amassed garments, all the food that you put to waste, you have put so much work into it that in the last days, it's all going to be gone anyway. It's worthless. It's temporary. And you say, well, what are the last days? Anytime you see that idea of last days in the Bible, it means it is a specific time period. The last days, okay, began when Jesus Christ died on the earth and rose again. And when will the last days end? That was his first coming when he comes back the second time. We are living in what, folks? The last days. And he's saying all the wealth that we accumulate in the last days, all the the things that we have that we call our own and that we uh, hoard and put over here is going to be destroyed anyway in the last days. It's going to be destroyed. Hoarding is one of the most widespread sins of our time. People gaining as much as they can to be used in a self-centered manner. And Christ followers often find it hard not to fall into the same thinking as our affluent culture. God entrusts believers with material goods to be used for His glory, not for us to hoard, not for us to build immense uh, masses of wealth. Christ followers are to provide for their Families, and we see this in 1 Timothy 5.8. It says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If you have family members who are struggling, if you have family members um, that don't have what they need, God says it's up to you to take care of them. Because if you don't 
and you keep that wealth and you store it away for yourself, he says, you're worse than an unbeliever. Because I've given you that money to bring glory to me by taking care of other people, specifically your family. It's okay for us to have reserves. And these reserves would, become, would be, include reasonable types of savings and investments set aside for, like I said, retirements and emergencies. But anything beyond that becomes dangerous because it's easy for us to begin to rely on our wealth and have that be our security rather than God Himself. And everybody says, well, what's reasonable? What's reasonable for, for savings? What's reasonable for retirement accounts? That's between you and God. But here again, we have to ask the questions. How many times have you ever asked God if you had enough? How many, have, how many of you have ever asked God or told God, Lord God, I, I would like to have enough, and I'm willing to stop building the well so that I can put more into your kingdom, more, in, more for your glory? How many of us have ever asked, do I have enough? And honestly come to God and said, I want to have enough so I can give more to you and your kingdom. Rarely does that thought even come across our minds because we always think that we need what? A little bit more. My retirement account, well, what if the economy collapses? Or what if this? Or what if this? And I need to have this much more. I need to have this much more. And when we hit that point, we say, and I've heard this uh, throughout my ministry. If I could only have this much in my savings account, I would be okay. And they get to that level of savings account. Well, if I only had this much in my savings account, I'll be okay. And then they get to that. Well, then if I only had this much in my savings account or my retirement account, I'd be okay. What's the problem with that? It's never enough. There's never a point when you start relying on God for all the unseen things. You rely on yourself and your ability to provide for you. Christ followers' hearts find great joy in being able to generously use their resources to advance the gospel and invest in God's kingdom work. There's great joy in our hearts when we can take things that we have, when we can take money and, and the wealth that we have and invest it in God's kingdom. And so many of us find it really difficult. We find it, well, I, I can give this much because I've got to keep the rest over here because I'm concerned. There's not a heart of generosity. There's not a heart of, I want to help. I want to give. And even if I have give to my hurt, God will provide. It doesn't mean that we have to be paupers. It doesn't mean we have to live as poor folk. But it also means there is a line and there is a limit somewhere to how much do we really need in this lifetime before it all becomes dedicated to God. When do you have enough? Some of you have heard me say this before. As you get towards the end of your career and you get a raise, when do you have enough where that raise goes all to God and none to you? Because you have enough. You don't need any more. But rarely do we ever find ourselves there. We get a raise, God gets 10%, we get 90%. He doesn't get it all. Should there be a time in our lives? That's James's point. James has been very clear. Those who name the name of Christ are not to amass material possessions that are uselessly hoarded away without regards for God's will and the advancement of the gospel. When is enough enough? When do I start investing 
in God more than myself. James begins his second condemnation in verse 4. Look at verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. What he's talking about there is the condemnation. He condemns them for the dishonest building of wealth. They hire day workers to come into their, fo- into their fields and to harvest their fields. And when they come in, they tell them, I will pay you this much at the end of the day. They were day workers. And the, the, the point of the, him saying day workers or harvesters is that they were poor, that every day they depended on what he promised to give them at the end of the day so they could buy food for their family when they went home. They had no reserves. They were dependent on that wage every day at the end of the day. And what these folks were doing, what these wicked rich were doing, was they were promising to pay, and then they would withhold the pay. Knowing that their families would go hungry. Knowing that they couldn't pay their bills. And they were building their own wealth because they were harvesting and they were selling the harvest for a profit and they weren't having to pay anything out to pay their workers. I want to show you that this was condemned throughout the Bible. Oops. If you, I'll read to you Deuteronomy, if you want to write this in your notes, Deuteronomy 24, verses 14 through 15. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of your sojourners who are in your land, within your towns. You shall give him his wage on the same day before the sun sets. Here's why. For he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. And they were ignoring God's word and withholding it. It's a very serious matter to withhold pay of a day laborer And the prophet Jeremiah also pronounced a curse on those who did it. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. And he says there, who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper room by injustice. You build those things because you are gaining wealth at the expense of whom? Those whom you're hiring. James wants to warn the wages. Listen to what he says there. It's... it's, it's, It's really poignant. Behold, the wages of your laborers who mowed your field are crying out against you. The wages, not the harvesters. He says that in a minute. He says the wages are crying out against you. The money that you actually stole are crying out against you. And that cry will be listened to by God. And you will be judged by God for dishonest built of wealth. The dishonest of building dishonest wealth. James condemns those outside the church who build their wealth through dishonest practices. And this would have been very, very clear. You want to know something? We often do the same thing. But we don't count it as dishonest gain. How many of us have ever filed a tax form that wasn't completely accurate or didn't put all is that dishonest gain absolutely how many of us told a, a, an employer that we worked so many hours and put that on our time card 
when we know that we didn't work that many hours? Is that a dishonest game? It is. Building your wealth at the expense of somebody else. How many examples could we go through here where we just kind of accept it as it's just part of life? part of what we do. They take too many taxes anyway, so it's no big deal that I keep a few back or I don't report that money. God says that's dishonest building of wealth. It's dishonest and it's condemned. Then we find the next condemnation in verse 5, the indulgence of wealth. The indulgence of wealth. And this one here is so hard for many of us in our lives. Look at verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. The wicked rich added to their sin by using their wealth for their own selfish indulgence. And James describes their self-indulgence by using three verbs in that verse. He says, you lived on the earth in luxury, in self-indulgence, and you have fattened your hearts. He says, here's three descriptions of what I mean. When he says, in luxury, James condemns the wicked rich for living in a soft, extravagant, extravagant luxury. They were focused on themselves, and the main focus of their life was their good living. They would, they would not lift a finger to help anybody. They would sit back on their couches, and they would be served. They were living in luxury. And James says, that's not what life is about. Life is about work. Life is about gaining wealth more for the kingdom of God than for yourself. It is not for you to sit back and just enjoy. Does it mean we can't enjoy things? No. But is there a level, is there a time when enough is enough and I've had enough vacations and I've had enough of investments and I have enough of collecting the things that I like that enough is enough and I don't need anything more and anything I have outside of what I have right now belongs to God totally, 100%. That's his point. He says, you're living lives of luxury. Then he says, they were also living in self-indulgence. This is the idea of giving oneself to the pursuit of pleasure. It's a life without the idea that, as I've said a minute ago, having enough. There's little sense of contentment. Those with money frequently close their eyes to the needs of others and for the work of God. And that will never change apart from the faith in Christ. And he says, he says, it's a self-indulgent life. I live for me. I invest for me. I invest so I can take more vacations or so I can not work as much. I do all these things for me. And James says, that is sin. That is condemned. Few of us, I think, would fall into this or say we fall into it intentionally, but how many of us live day in, day out with the money and the resources and the wealth that we have for us? without ever a thought of enough is enough. We are not to live self-indulgent lives. We are to live lives that make a difference for Christ, that further His kingdom and further the gospel. And that's going to cost us in time. That's going to cost us of our wealth. That's going to cost us and if we lay those things aside because it costs, James condemns that. You're being self-indulgent if you live for you. And then he says, you fatten your hearts 
And this is a striking picture that he paints here. And it would, it's not always visible to us, but to his audience, it would have been a striking picture. He says, look at the last part, you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. He says, you do all of this. He says, you live in luxury. You live in self-indulgence. And he says, you're fattening yourself up because many, many people, what was another sign of wealth in the first century? The fatter you are, the more wealthy you are. That was just what it was. And he says, you understand this? He says, you are a fatted calf. You are the calf that is raised from a very young age to be slaughtered, to be used for somebody else's purpose. And they're fed the good food and they're fed the corn and they're, fatted, they're, they're being fattened. And does the calf enjoy that through his whole life? Does the calf like the leisure living? Does the calf like uh, becoming more and more fatted? And enjoy? The calf has no clue what's coming. He doesn't understand. The calf does not know that he is being prepared to be killed. And James says the people who live in this self-indulgent, luxurious life are like fatted calves. They are living and they're enjoying and they don't understand that they're going to be slaughtered. That's what he's saying. How much of a condemnation is that? That we live a life with a focus on us, self-indulgent, and we don't even know that it's going to cost us. And remember, he's talking to whom outside the, the church? Those wicked wealthy. He says, they're all going to be slaughtered. They're all, they're all going to be killed, and their wealth isn't going to stop them, and they don't even know it's coming. And he says, this is, this is something we need to understand. They're blind to heaven, deaf to the warnings of hell, insensitive to the impending day of slaughter and judgment. The unrepentant, selfish, indulgent hoarders stumble blindly to their doom unless they repent. And James warns them, if you don't repent, you are going to experience damnation. That's the condemnation that we see. It's so easy for all of us to fall into the trap of self-indulgence because we live in a culture of affluence. Again, it's not bad, but it's really hard for us to keep control. We live as if our right, it is our right to be com- live in comfort with plenty to eat, to be entertained. We spend more time thinking about our wants, our desires, our dreams, our careers, our accounts than we do about God's will and what we can do for His kingdom. And we, we have to look in the mirror and be honest about that. What consumes your mind on a day in, day out, week in, week out, what consumes your mind more? Preparing for your retirement, preparing for all of this, working and, and, and developing career and, and all of this, which is not bad, but it becomes sinful when it's at the expense of thinking about what you can do for God's kingdom. When we make all these presumptuous plans and all they have is self in mind. That's what James is saying here. And James begins his fourth condemnation of misusing wealth in verse 6. The ruthless obtaining of wealth. The ruthless obtaining of wealth. Look at verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person and he does not resist you. 
The word here, condemned, it helps us to understand what James is saying. In the Greek, it means to pass sentence. The word condemned means to pass sentence upon or to uh, give a judgment of condemnation. And the implication is that the wicked rich were using the courts to to judicially murder the abuses of the poor. And do we see that today? Where the rich and the powerful use people in the court system and in the legal system. They can, and that's one of the reasons why people are so against the death penalty, even though it's biblical, is because people who have, are accused of murder and have great wealth, they very, very, very often get off and they either get life in prison or a shorter sentence because they have all the means to fight against it. Whereas a person who is of poorer means, who does not have that wealth, who does not have access to, that, uh, to, to those assets, okay, they can do the same thing in the same situation and they will be condemned to death. And we see this throughout the world today where the rich and powerful bribe and, uh, a corrupt judicial system, bribe judges and bribe lawyers. And, and, and that basically what James is saying is that causes other people to be murdered. It is murder in the courts because you take everything from them. You take their land, you take their wealth, you take their clothing, and you add it to yours in suits that you bring against them, and they go home with nothing. They go home with nothing. The ruthless obtaining of wealth we see this being addressed in Amos chapter 5. It says, For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. This is God speaking. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy at the gate. He goes, I know your many transgressions. And we see that on James's day. The rich sought to pervert the judicial system so they can add more gain to their wealth. Wealth may be a blessing, a gift from God to bring opportunity to good, do good, but that can only be tre- true of those who are rich in faith because only the rich in faith will live a life that is not me-centered and is centered on serving God for His glory and His honor. And we will be generous with the people both in our church and outside the church. If wealth is to be a source of blessing and not condemnation, it must not be uselessly hoarded, unjustly gained, self-indulgently spent, or ruthlessly acquired. Paul's charge to Timothy shows how God expects the wealth. This is a direct opposite. This is a, uh, how we are to act with our wealth. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 6. As for the rich, now Paul is talking specifically to the rich in this present age. Charge them. What's he mean by charge them? This is Timothy, a pastor. And he's telling Timothy, you tell them. You have authority to tell them that this is how they're to act. He says, charge them not to be haughty or prideful, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides with everything to enjoy. They, the rich, are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. How much of that is self-centered? How much of that is self-indulgent? 
None of it. We live to be generous. We live to give. We live to help. We live to provide for the poor. We live for these things with the wealth that God has given us. We don't live for us and our retirement and our thing. It, those things are not bad unless we cross the line and begin to hoard and begin to think self-indulgently. So now we need to look in the mirror. How are we doing? That's why it's sitting down here. Is James putting a mirror before us? How are you handling your wealth? And the determining factor is your heart. It's not how, how, much, how, much, how many percent you're getting or how much of a percentage are you getting on your investments. It is your heart. What does your heart drive you to do? Where is your heart most comfortable? Thinking about you and your investments and your life and providing for the future or about God's kingdom, about what you can do to help God and His church. It's a mirror. And the question that we need to ask the, and, and is often asked is, especially, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that many of us, I know I was convicted, I know I need to look, but many of us need to look in that mirror. And when we look in that mirror, we're going to be convicted, true? Because we know where our hearts are. We know where we need to grow. This is one of those times when God is coming alongside saying, hey man, I need to turn your head. I need to get you to look in a different place right now. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be a change in life. But I need you to change. I need you to practice this and not practice this. And when we see that, when we understand that, we need to ask, how do I change? If you've been convicted today on any level, how do we change? How do we begin to change? First of all, because of time, I'm just going to give you the verses. Don't ever forget that God owns everything you have. You, every dime you spend, you are spending someone else's money. And you need to look at it that way. It is not my money to spend. We see that in Psalm 24.1. You can write that verse down. Going right along with that is you are a steward and not an owner. If you were to stand before the owner right now today, how would he say that you stewarded his wealth? We are going to be held accountable when we give an account, when you give an account for how you're using your wealth and you lay it before the Lord and you give an account for how you invested it and what returns you got on it. He doesn't care if you turned it and got a, a, a 15% return on it. What he cares about is what did you do with it because your heart. Did you build my kingdom? Did you build my church? Did you help the poor and the widows? That's what he's going to ask us. How do I change? Know that God owns everything you have. Know that you're a steward and not an owner. We see that in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. You live for Him. And here's one that we all need. We need to ask for help. We need to ask for help. We need to have other Christ followers in our lives. That's in Proverbs 15, 22, which says, In a multitude of counselors there is what? Great wisdom. It is easy for us to become distracted, and we need people around us who are going to say what? Whoa. 
Who do you have in your life that is a counselor to you and how, and how you're using your wealth? Who's able to come to you and you've given them permission to ask the question, how are you doing in your investments? Many of us don't want anybody telling us or giving us advice about our investments unless they can be a financial advisor and tell us what, I can get you more percentage. How many of us want a person, a godly man or a woman coming into our lives and saying, hey, how come you're buying that? Don't you have enough already? What, what, do we want anybody having that access to our lives? Because you're going to say, it's none of your business. This is my money. No, it's not. We need help, and we need to ask for help, and we need wise Christian men and women, friends, other church members who come alongside and say, why are you making this big purchase? Or why, why did you do this? Or why did you buy the new car and add payments to your, to your life? And that's hard, isn't it? Because we don't want to be held accountable like that. But we all need it. We all need it. Father God, we come to You with open hearts. Hearts that are bare before You. Having been, been bared or opened up by the Word of God. Lord God, there's going to be discomfort. There's going to be maybe even some pain. There's going to be some struggle when we look in the mirror and we don't like what we see. I pray, Lord God, that we would take it to heart that you've shown us not to be mean, not to admonish us, but to Say, this is what I want you to become. This is what I am preparing you to be. And Father, I pray that we would praise your name for that. That we would understand that it is your love that is causing you to show us this. And Father, if we have come to a point where we understand that we're not handling our wealth wisely, that we're being misusing our wealth. Lord God, I pray that you would, that we would be people of repentance, that we, we would repent and that we would begin to change, practice the things that you have shown us today. And Lord, if there's somebody here this morning who says, my heart is not in the right place. I absolutely have no desire to handle wealth like that. I have no desire to relinquish my wealth and see it as belonging to God. Father, I pray that you would open their hearts, that you would show them their need for Jesus Christ, that you would help them see that they need a Savior who can change everything about how they view wealth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.